or give us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You know, there's a good amount said about debt in America today, and it's probably for good reason. It's one of the most contributing factors to a lot of societal and especially marital strain in our lives. Um, Let me give you some sobering numbers on the issue. I don't know if If you are a numbers person, I certainly am not, but this is from an organization called Debt.org that they have tasked themselves with making sure that Americans have a good understanding of what debt is and the issue that it has, that it can sink its talons in our lives. At the end of last year, it was calculated that the total household debt in America is up to $16.9 trillion. Um, That is up. $2.75 trillion since just the end of 2019. We have blown that out of the water. I think the pandemic had a lot to do with that, but that's no excuse at all. What that means is we have a problem with debt in our nation. Um, That 16.9 trillion number, it can be broken down to $986 billion in credit card debt, 119, uh, excuse me, uh, $11.9 trillion in mortgages, $1.5 trillion in vehicle loans, and $1.6 trillion in student debt. One way to think of all of this is that if we were to spread the debt out all around equally among Americans, something that I am decidedly and totally against, Every U.S. citizen would be saddled with $48,000 of debt, which is just slightly under the average annual salary in our country. So that means that 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 baby that you just are cradling in your arms, they owe $48,000. Now, if statistics hold true, about three-quarters of our congregation here today will owe over $60,000 in debt at your time of death. That means that your estate will have to be sold off to offset the cost of your living and and what you wanted to leave your family will most likely have to be sold because they just can't afford their inheritance. It really hits home, however, when you read an article that, that made its rounds a few months ago which claimed that over half of those divorced last year cited debt as a leading contributor to their marriage's demise. We've got a problem with debt in America. And I haven't even mentioned the national debt yet. I don't even like talking about it. I remember when I was in high school for our homework one day, one of our teachers made us go home and search for the website called the U.S. Debt Clock. Have you looked at that recently? It's not fun. I was blown away at how fast those numbers moved. Back then in the early 2000s, the national debt was a mind-blowing $10 trillion. Today, I checked the clock this morning just before leaving to come to church. I took a, a screen video of it, screenshot video of it, and you see that we are now at $32 trillion and it's racing up every single millisecond, it seems. That means that every taxpayer personally is responsible for $250,000. Welcome to the land of the free and highly indebted. That really is alarming. But I hope you understand this morning, more alarming than that is the debt that we have amassed against God. What would your personal debt 
clock look like? Were we to put in your date of birth and hit play and see the numbers of sin that you have committed against an almighty, holy God? It's a sobering thought. Midway through the Lord's model prayer for us, Jesus urges us to pray to God that he would forgive us our debts. You might be sitting here today and might be wondering, what is this debt that I supposedly owe God? We're fully aware of our mortgage and how much we owe on that. We had to sit down and sign paperwork in order for that to begin, but we've never sat down with the king of the universe to work out some kind of lease agreement. What is this debt that we're talking about? The answer is an interesting one, albeit a little bit technical, and I'm going to try to do my best with the most work that I've done in my study this week is to kind of work through what this means. The word that Jesus uses here for debt, it really is a one of a kind. Some commentators might even say that it's as if Jesus made up the word. It gets pretty technical, but I believe I've gotten my head around it. Jesus took the Greek word aphilo, which has to do with being responsible for something, and he added a negative suffix to it, making the word aphilomata. Basically, what Jesus is saying here in this word that he describes debt with is these debts are something that we are responsible for, but we can never pay. Forgive us our debts that I am personally responsible for, yet I have no ability wherewithal whatsoever to pay even a dime on this debt. I wonder how you learned the Lord's Prayer. We've, we've said it together the last seven weeks, and sometimes I find myself still stumbling over some of the wording because of translation differences. I told you before, I learned it in the old King James, and, and sometimes the new King James, it's difficult for me to, to say it in that way. But it's also because Luke records the model of prayer as well, and it's a little bit different from Matthew's recording of the model prayer, and, th and that shouldn't be earth-shattering. Sometimes people get really hung up on, well, this passage of Scripture doesn't match what this passage of Scripture says, so which, which is it? It's very likely that Jesus gave the model prayer on multiple occasions. He taught a lot while he was here for those three and a half years of teaching ministry. And he, in Luke's account of the model prayer, Jesus directs us to pray and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Still, there's others who, they trip over some of the wording too because maybe some of our, our brothers who are from a Catholic or Anglican background, you remember learning the Lord's Prayer and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Well, well which is it? Is it sin? Is it debt? Is it trespasses? And the answer is yes. <laughs> it is all of them. Luke's account of sin refers to missing the mark intentionally. You know what was right, and you did not do what was right. Matthew's account, using the word debt or trespasses, sometimes archaically translated, it has to do with unknowingly missing the mark, or maybe carelessly 
missing the mark of God's righteousness. So you understand what I mean by that. There are some people who they know what is right and they do the exact opposite. And then there are others who they sin out of ignorance. They didn't know that it was wrong or they didn't know that they were sinning against somebody, but all the same, it is still sin. It really is both or all of them because the truth of the matter is I sin, I knowingly miss the mark, the flesh is weak, but there are also times in which because of my human nature and just general fallenness, I sin inadvertently or carelessly without even really knowing that I've done so. For evidence of that, husbands and wives, we need only look down the pew at each other. How many times have we done something to hurt the other? We truly have sinned against that person and we didn't even know it or perhaps we did, but we never even stopped to really think about it. I hope I'm not the only one. Anyway, I'm just telling myself apparently. But if you were to add to all of this discussion that the scriptures teach us that there are two types of sin holistically, there are those sins of commission. I do things wrong against God. Sins I actively, I commit. I I think we understand those. But then there are also sins of omission. Sins I commit by not doing what I ought. For evidence of this, you need only look to the book of James, chapter 4, verse 17. We'll get there in like five months as we go through Sunday evenings in the book of James. Or James says, anyone then who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, he commits sin. You realize that you can commit sin and you can also commit sin by omitting what you ought to do. We sin, every single one of us. I want you to think again about that that sin debt clock that I mentioned earlier. How much do you sin a day? I, I don't want to treat this lightly. I want you to think about it for a second. Do you think that you sin about 10 times a day? I think that's giving ourselves a lot of grace, personally. Especially when you think about the sins of omission, things that we ought to do but we don't do. When we think about sins of our thought life, when we think about sins in our language, gossip, slighting others, But let's just say that 10 sins a day, that's what we do. That means that as I, as a 36-year-old, I have committed over 134,000 sins in my lifetime, and I'm telling you, it's a whole lot more than that. That means that I am speaking so generically now, based upon the average attendance in our church, that within the walls of this house of worship, based upon those numbers, I'm putting you all at 36 years old. Wouldn't you love to be 36 years old again? Within this room, there are 43 million sins. That is our sin debt against a holy God. Now again, you might think that my doing generic math like that, I'm making light of sin. I sure hope that's not the case. What I'm trying to convey is that we have amassed a lot of sins throughout our lifetimes and something has to be done with that sin. Something has to happen to it. You can't just file for bankruptcy against your sin and it just go out into nothingness. 
there's an old song. I grew up singing it in, our, in the church that I grew up in. As a kid, I loved it, similar to the first song that we sang this morning. It had that rolling bass line. The men in our church really sang it out as, as they do here at New Hope. And I remember as a child hearing them belt it out and me singing along with them and really thinking, I can sing really low. The truth is I couldn't even hear myself sing. They, they were just singing so loud, I had convinced myself I was singing down, that way. It was long ago down on my knees. Long ago, I settled it all. Can't even hit that now. <laughs> Most of you have heard the old account was settled long ago. It's number 323 in your hymn book if you just want to pull it out and take a look at it this morning. I fear that most of you are like me. That number 323. Because of the tune and the nature of that song, you don't really feel the full weight of it. It's got that peppy tempo so popular around the turn of the 20th century. And you're singing really, really hard and deep lyrics, but to like super bright melody. It just doesn't fit. I wish somebody would redo it, quite honestly. So let's take it out of the music. Let's take it off the page, and let me just read to you what we sing when we sing, the old account was settled long ago. Verse one says, there was a time on earth when in the book of heaven, an old account was standing for sins yet unforgiven. My name was at the top and many things below. Let's skip to verse two. The old account was large and it was growing every day for I was always sinning and I never tried to pay. Do you feel the, the weight of those lyrics? I hope you do. Instead of just singing them, there was a time on earth when there was a time when my name was on a debt that I could not pay. I did more than that. I kept adding to the debt. I could not stop sinning. And it was growing every single day of my life. What is going to be done with that sin? Debt really is the best word here. Because each of those sins that we have racked up in our lifetime, they have to be accounted for. They must be paid. For some reason, we've bought into the moralist's lie. Well, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just try to make sure that my good outweighs my bad. Look, friend, I have heard that this week. I just, I just want to be a good person and somehow my good, my kindness, it will outweigh my bad. What is the basis for that? I, I want you to reason with me just a little bit here this morning. Quantitatively, how much good offsets one bad? What's the exchange rate on good versus bad? Qualitatively, how good does something have to be in order for something to offset something that's really bad? For the murderers and rapists of our society, what good things 
could they possibly do that could ever pay for those egregious sins? How can good, my good, your good, ever outweigh our bad? And if I'm just doing something good out of obligation or payment, does it still retain its goodness? You know what I mean? If I'm just doing it for my own selfish needs, doesn't that then turn into selfishness? And then turn my good works into, I don't know, filthy rags? The whole thing of good outweighing bad is a, I do not use this lightly, I mean it in the scriptural sense. It is a damnable heresy that has sent many to hell. Thinking, if I just live a good enough life, St. Peter and Jesus, they're gonna meet me at the gates and they're gonna say, oh, he's a good old boy, let him in. There is not enough good you can do. There is not enough good I can do that will ever offset the evil sin of my life. I can't do enough good, nor is my good so pure as to offset or pay for the millions of sins which I've committed in my life. Again, reason with me. Who's the judge of this kind of debt? Who's the one who says, okay, enough good outweighs the bad? Who's the one who does that? Who decides who's been good enough and who's done worse? Is it me? Is it the people I've wronged? Well, I sure hope not. The the problem is, is that in most of this caricature of hoping that my good outweighs the bad, most people invoke the name of God. Well, well, God will look at me and he'll he'll say my good outweighs my bad. If it's God, if God is the judge, if you want to bring him into the conversation, you must know that he has left all of that nonsense behind. And he never says one thing, not one verse, not one word similar to that in all of his word. So what then is the answer? What do I do with my sin debt? If I can't outweigh it with the good things that I do, what's to be done with it? One word. Forgiveness. One word. Forgiveness. I could walk you down a rabbit hole of a word study on this beautiful word that we take for granted. We think we know what it means, but we don't. Forgiveness. Let me instead, let me just give you a few equivalents. It's used, the word forgiveness is used 146 times throughout just the New Testament. And in those verses, It's used to describe what it means to send away, to cast out, cause to depart, to yield up, to expire, to let alone, to let go, to let be, to disregard, to give up a debt, to remit payment, to keep no longer, to not hinder, to cancel a debt. So when we pray to God, forgive us our sin debts, we are acknowledging that God is the only one with the capability and the authority to forgive us our sin debts. 
I, I could come to you and I could ask forgiveness of something that I did against you and you could grant forgiveness to me for that one singular act, but you have no right or authority to forgive my sins against Rachel. Not one of you. But God, he can. Why is that? Because all sin is an affront to a holy God. It is committed against him first and foremost against him. Do you remember David? David and his adulterous affair, his sin, possible rape against Bathsheba. Do you remember this story, this cover-up job that involved lying and drunkenness and the ultimate murder of Bathsheba's husband Uriah just so David could come out looking like the good king that he was? When David finally comes to grips with what he has done, he looks at the Lord and he prays to him one of the most heartbreaking but good psalms in all of the Bible, Psalm 51. And he says, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you and you only have I sinned. I've done evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now David's prayer, it doesn't disregard the pain that He's brought on others. He's not obfuscating the fact that others have been sinned against, but he is pointing out the fact that his sin is so egregious like yours and mine that only God would have the right and the ability to forgive him, and so it is with us. Obviously, we ought to try to make things right with those who we have hurt. More on that in a minute. But at the end of the day, only God... Only the righteous, the just, the holy, only God can forgive. And here's the problem. Scripture teaches us that the payment for our sin or the wages that we owe after, the, after a whole day of sinning is death. You get that, don't you? Every single day you sin, apart from Christ and his forgiveness, you are racking up more on this debt and the only way for it to be paid is death. Romans 6, 23, you know this by heart, many of you, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So it is no wonder that 2,000 years ago, after Jesus stumbled up the hill outside of Jerusalem, beaten, bruised, bloody, that he could not even be recognizable as a man, a crown of thorns plaited on his head, nails driven through his, his wrists and his feet, bones out of socket. It's no wonder that as he is gasping for breath, pushing up against the nail in his feet, fighting against the fluid that has collected in his lungs, which is now suffocating him, it's no wonder that Jesus chose the words, it is finished when he was on the cross. He cried out a Greek word, tetelestai. That, my friends, tetelestai is an accounting term. Why in the world would somebody who is gasping for breath scream out an accounting term as one of his final sayings from the cross? Because he's saying, your sin, the payment of your debt, of your debt has been paid in 
full. So when God forgives us our sin debt, he doesn't just wave some magical wand and make it all disappear as some think we could do with our debt. No, it is paid in full by Christ's penal substitutionary atonement. The death of the righteous for the lives of the ungodly, the sacrifice of the perfect for all of the stained. Jesus, the one and holy Lamb of God, slain for you so that when you pray, forgive me my sin debt, our Father says, oh, my boy paid that a long time ago. You are forgiven, child. It's been sent away, cast out as far as the east is from the west. I've caused it to depart from you. It's been yielded up. The debt has expired. Let alone, let go. Payment has been remitted. The debt is kept no longer on the books. It does not hinder you anymore. You are loosed. You are forgiven. If that is not you today, it seems so elementary, so childish to some. If you've never asked God, forgive me, if you've continued to accrue a sin debt for which you cannot pay, if you're just focusing on on living your life, not getting into all of these religious debates, i got to ask you, what, pray tell, what is keeping you from the forgiveness that he freely gives to all who would ask to receive it? Could it be I think it is. Could it be that we have a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of forgiveness? I know we do. For evidence of that, you really only need to look at the very first time that the word forgive, forgiveness, is ever used in the Bible. It's in the book of Genesis. It's the story of Joseph. Let me take you to Sunday school real fast. I thought about bringing up some flannel graph here this morning and tell you the story of Joseph. Joseph was the youngest of ten half-brothers. He, he was the most loved in his family by his dad. Given the coat of many colors, which meant that it probably had long sleeves, which meant he didn't have to do a lot of work. That's the kind of son I want to be. Most loved in his family And his brothers hated him for it. (laughs) There's the flip side of that. Their hatred grew and grew until one day as they saw him approaching, they schemed together amongst themselves to murder him. And Joseph was only saved from death that day because one of the brothers said, if we kill him, we won't get anything out of it. (laughs) We'll just get blood on our hands. And so they threw him in a pit until some traveling slavers caravaned by, at which time they picked him up out of the pit and they sold him, their own brother, into slavery. The slavers, they they shackled him all the way to Egypt where he was sold to an official in Pharaoh's regime. We don't have time to get into it all. I mean, this is half the book of Genesis right here. 
Eventually, Joseph is falsely accused of rape. He's thrown into prison. He's forgotten. And there he is, the most loved son of his father, able to interpret dreams, gifted in intelligence, falsely accused, and he is rotting, rotting in Shawshank. Not a bit of hope at all. There's several turns in the story ensue until he is ultimately released and he is made powerful in Egypt just in time to save the country and the world for that matter from starving to death in this horrible extensive famine until one day who would walk into his throne room emaciated and starving but his own ten half-brothers, the ones who sold him into slavery who caused him to be falsely accused of rape, who essentially were the ones to throw him in prison and made him feel all the heartache. The years had been hard on Joseph, and undoubtedly he had been Egyptian-fied, so they probably didn't, well, we know they didn't recognize him, but he did them. And one of the most dramatic scenes in all of the Bible, skimming over huge chapters today, Joseph breaks down, weeping in front of them, He provides for them. He clothes them. He gives them the choicest land in all of Egypt. And he takes care of them. Bringing the Israelites, the first Israelites, into the land of Egypt to protect them during this famine. Years later, however, you think the story ends there. It doesn't. (laughs) Years later, after their father Jacob dies, the brothers, they get together again And they start scheming, thinking, oh, Joseph, he's just done all of this just to be kind to our father. So now that dad is dead, he is going to wreak havoc on us. He's just brought us close so that he could torment us all the worse. And so in their scheming, they hire out a messenger. Wouldn't you have loved to have been this guy? And they tell him, they lie to him, and they say, our father Jacob, Just before he died, he had a message that he wanted to send to our brother Joseph. Go to him. Genesis chapter 50, verse 17, they say to this messenger, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they do evil to you. Now, please forgive the trespasses of the servants of the God of your father, And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. They didn't understand forgiveness. Years later, and they're still trying to make up for it. Joseph had forgiven them years ago. That sin debt had been canceled against them, but they had lived in fear for years, thinking that he was only waiting for the right time to hold it over their heads again. Joseph isn't like his brothers. Forgiveness was never a scheme just to get ahead. And similarly for us, forgiveness from God ought never to be for our own benefit. And this is where it gets interesting because I think this is where the rubber meets the road. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do you dare pray that? 
The most interesting thing about this plea in the Lord's Prayer is that it's the only one that's actually verifiable. Think about it. We can pray, Father, you are in heaven and we want to hallow your name. But there's really no tangible, verifiable result to that. Nobody can come along and say, oh, you are, you are hallowing God's name. There's no result. There's no evidence of that. We can pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. And we can say it with our lips, but in our hearts, we are leaning and depending on our own jobs and own self-sufficiency, saying, I can do this myself, all the while saying a few blessing words over the, the meal that I'm about to pray. But forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We are inviting the whole world to investigate the forgiveness of God by how we forgive others. Lord, hold me to account. That's what we're praying. Forgive me my debts as I forgive my debtors. Here's the thing, church. The Lord takes forgiving others. He takes this thing so seriously. In fact, a page over in Matthew chapter 5, he said, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Pretty much, let me modernize it a little bit for you. If you find yourself at church, if you are attending church today and you're singing the hymns and you're fellowshipping with everybody and you're giving in the drop box and you're acting like everything is good in your life, raising your hand and, and fist bumping that guy that you, you see every single Sunday, but then the Lord reminds you of some sin committed against you that you maybe committed against your wife or your boss or your employee or your parent or your estranged family, what God says, is get up off the pew and he doesn't say come down to the altar and repent no no no. don't wait for an altar call don't come down here go across the church building and go to the person whom you've sinned against get it right with them and then raise your hand and worship and then freely give to the furtherance of the gospel and then truly fellowship with the saints what would that look like? Oh man, what would that look like? Usually, I'm not a fan of a lot of the disruptions and moving around that's been going on at New Hope for the last couple of months. That's my passive aggressive way to try to stem some of that. I'm not a fan of that. But if you move because of this reason, and if what Lynn prayed actually came true, that I was just pushed aside, because one brother and one sister, they're being reconciled, that the husbands and wives, they're making things right. Instead of putting on the facade, the hypocrisy of, of, yeah, we got our suits on and we're in church and we're doing all this stuff outwardly. If you moved in the middle of the service to make things right with another, shut the church down. It's actually happening. Repentance, forgiveness, true Worship is happening in the church. What would it look like? 
Why is the Lord so strong on this aspect of forgiveness? Here's why. I told it to you up front. If you don't get anything else from this sermon, I want you to get this. If you take notes, if you don't take notes, just emblazon it on your head. The forgiven should be forgiving. The forgiven should be forgiving. So serious was Jesus on this point that He essentially said that if there is someone that you will not forgive, then you are obviously not one of those who's been forgiven. You have a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of forgiveness. You say, but you don't know what they did to me. And you're right. I've got no clue. I have no idea what they have done to you. But I do know what we did to Jesus. And He still prayed while on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I don't know how you've been wronged, but I know how we wronged Christ. David already, at the open of the service during our call to worship, he read it. But let me just again relay the parable of the unforgiving servant that Jesus told once in Matthew 18. I'll, I'll read it in Eugene Peterson's kind of folksy retelling in the message so that maybe it, it lands on our modern ears in a more understanding way. Jesus once said that the kingdom of God is like a king who decided to square accounts with his servants. As he got underway, one servant was brought before him who had run up a debt of $100,000. He couldn't pay it off. So the king ordered the man, along with his wife, children, and goods, to be auctioned off at the slave market. The poor wretch threw himself at the king's feet and begged, saying, give me a chance and I'll pay it back, knowing full well that the debt was so big no amount of time would be enough to pay it all back. Touched by his plea, the king let him off, erasing the debt. The servant was no sooner out of the room when he came upon one of his fellow servants who owed him $10. And he seized him by the throat and he demanded, pay up now. The poor wretch threw himself down and begged, give me a chance and I'll pay it all back. But he wouldn't do it. He had him arrested and put in jail until the debt was paid. When the other servants saw this going on, they were outraged and they brought a detailed report to the king. The king summoned the man and said, You evil servant, I forgave you your entire debt when you begged me for mercy. Shouldn't you be compelled to be merciful to your fellow servant who's asked for mercy? And switching to the new King James, and his master was angry, and he delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. Jesus ends that story by saying, so my heavenly Father also will do to each of you from his heart if he does not forgive his brother his trespasses. 
to hold out forgiveness from someone after you have been forgiven by God proves that you don't really have a handle on how destitute or how big your sin debt actually was. You're trusting in a, well, I'm not that bad kind of Christianity, which is wholly and totally not Christianity at all. Jesus was about radical forgiveness. Forgiveness that didn't even make sense. I think Tim Teller, Tim Keller gave the best, most understandable and biblical definition of forgiveness before he died last year. He said, forgiveness is a promise not to keep bringing the matter up to the person, others, or even to ourselves. Sounds so good. So very difficult to do. He also once wrote that forgiveness is a practice before it is a feeling. What he means by that is sometimes you have to decide to forgive even while you are still angry at the person for wronging you. I could give you example after example, illustration after illustration that I've read this week. We don't have time. I'll just reference a few of them quickly. I could tell you about a Holocaust survivor who embraced a Nazi prison camp officer who is personally responsible for her own suffering and her sister's death. I could tell you about an entire Amish community taking food to the home of the family of a man who hours earlier had murdered five of their elementary-aged girls. I could remind you of a whole church a few years ago who stood at the trial of a racist murderer, each walking to the microphone in the court to utter, to utter the words, I forgive you. There are so many more, but each of them preach, I have been forgiven so much. So much. You don't even understand. I have been forgiven so, so much. How could I not forgive you? Each one preaches the gospel of radical forgiveness. Forgive us our debts. You might be here today and you've never prayed that prayer. You've never asked for forgiveness. You see it as a sign of weakness. You've never admitted your wrong to anyone, especially to God. You feel silly even praying. Who are you talking to? A figment of your imagination? And the reality is there is a debt that you will account for. Forgive me my debt. 
Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Christian, who's your debtor? Have you released them as Christ has released you? Have you chosen to not remember it anymore, to not bring it up to them, to others, to yourself? Maybe the altar call should be this way and not this way. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.